Well, good morning. It's okay. Welcome to daylight savings time. I understand. Uh, my, my name's Todd Daly. I'm not Randy Boltinghouse, who was uh, off for a while. Uh, I teach theology and ethics at Urbana Seminary, and I will be filling in a couple of times during the next month while Randy recovers from his surgery, which, by the way, uh, went, went successfully, so uh, we can praise God for that as uh, he recuperates. Um, we're, we're in a series uh, that's just starting called Jesus Died For, and this morning we're going to talk about Judas Iscariot, and then a few weeks I'll uh, be back again to talk about Barabbas, so kind of out of the frying pan into the fire. Um, Jesus Died For, Th this series has been started during uh, the season of Lent, uh, this is actually the, the second Sunday of Lent. It's a season leading up to Easter. And historically, in the church, it's been marked as a 40-day period of reflection and repentance that is patterned after Jesus' flight to the wilderness after he was baptized. It can be traced all the way back to, uh, to the early uh, 200s in the church. But during Lent, we deliberately slow down and ask God to refashion and reshape our hearts by making them sorrowful over our sin and failures. Like Lent invites us into the formative practices of fasting, whether from food or from certain kinds of speech or technology, uh, but it also uh, gives us the opportunity to engage in practices like meditation or prayer or service. And all of this sounds rather heavy and laborious, and, and it can be, but it's meant to prepare us for the resurrection. It's not about our salvation, it's about our sanctification. So this morning, we're going to look at the story of Judas Iscariot. If you have a Bible handy or you can grab the Bible in front of you, uh, turn to page 832. We'll be looking at Matthew's account of this story We'll pick up in chapter 26, verses 14 through 16, and then we'll, we'll jump ahead to a, a couple of more passages on the next page. But Matthew writes, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they, they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now over on the next page, picking up in verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And now chapter 27 in verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. 
Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. This is the word of the Lord. Before I say another word, let's pray. God, take these words and make them yours to do your will. In your name we pray, amen. So what does it mean to say that Christ died for Judas? I think Judas positively reminds us that God is able to bring redemption through deceitful, duplicitous, manipulating betrayers like us. So we should be encouraged, Uh, but it also comes with a bit of a warning. And before I get ahead of myself, uh, slow down here and uh, discuss the history of Judas. Uh, Because his life, frankly, is an enigma. In 1964, Bob Dylan wrote a song entitled With God on Our Side that decried the atrocities that nations commit when they assume that God is involved in their own purposes and that God is backing them. And near the end of the song, he asks, in many a dark hour, I've been thinking about this, that Jesus Christ was betrayed by a kiss. But I can't think for you, you'll have to decide whether Judas Iscariot had God on his side. That's like a very insightful theological question from Dylan. But with all due respect, I'm not sure the question is whether we have God on our side, but whether we're on God's. Nevertheless, um, throughout history, Judas is synonymous with betrayer. Right? No one wants to be called a Judas. No one names their kid Judas. But a look at the history of attitudes surrounding Judas is actually far from, uh, far from conclusive. Not everyone agrees that he should even be called a betrayer. Um, some actually consider Judas a hero. There was this uh, recently discovered Gospel of Judas that was written sometime during the second century, and it depicted Judas as the only disciple who really understood what Jesus was trying to do really only stood his mission. And in this gospel, Judas actually does Jesus a favor by sending him to the cross so that his spirit can escape the prison of his body. And in that gospel, Jesus actually tells Judas, you will exceed all of them. Uh, The musical Jesus Christ Superstar shows Judas as blaming his own death and demise on Christ. You, you have murdered me, says Judas. More recently, the film Jesus of Nazareth, which is based on the gospel accounts, interprets Judas as a somewhat bewildered and confused disciple, which seems to be a little bit closer to the truth and is probably to some degrees true, but it also doesn't quite seem to hit the mark. No doubt the life of Judas is rife with contradiction. 
there's tension everywhere, and the gospel accounts themselves present Judas in an increasingly negative light. Mark says very little of Judas, says actually very little of his betrayal, and doesn't bother to even record his death. Matthew actually records the conversation that he has with the religious authorities, and Luke says that Satan entered Judas when he was about to carry out this betrayal. The Gospel of John says uh, that Judas freely stole from the disciples' money. And in John 6, Jesus calls Judas a devil. So we're presented kind of with layers of theological development about this particular figure, though none of it, none of it seems to be very clear. What should we think about Judas? Does Judas' life only serve as a warning to others? Like one of my favorite demotivation posters, um, um, if you can't read the bottom, it says mistakes. It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. <laughs> to be sure, that is part of the story of Judas. Make no mistake. But uh, is that all? Is that all we can say? Was Judas a misguided zealot, a cold, calculating schemer, a victim of history, a helpless pawn in God's plan? What can we learn from Judas? Uh, I alluded to earlier that uh, part of Judas' story is redemption, redemption through our own betrayals. Now, there are a few things we can learn here, but the first, the first one I want to talk about is decidedly negative. I think the life of Judas reminds us that discipleship is no guarantee against betrayal. And it's even possible that our betrayals end badly. And when we look at Judas' life, we are surrounded by several perplexing questions that render no clear answer here. How could one of the select disciples turn his back on Jesus Christ? Some will try to smooth over that paradox by claiming that Judas was never really a true follower of Jesus, was never really a disciple. I mean, it's far easier just to think of him as a pawn of Satan. We'll have more to say about that shortly. But I think it's wrong to view Judas in solely that light. For we have no reason to suspect any betrayal in any of the gospel accounts until he actually follows through with it. And Matthew reminds us of the fact that Judas was one of the twelve by referring to him as one of the twelve. That's exactly how Matthew identifies Judas throughout this betrayal story. This is his way of telling us that Judas is not just a follower from the distance or an occasional disciple or a nominal Christ follower disciple. Judas was handpicked by Jesus. They ate and they prayed together. Judas passed out the fishes and the loaves to the hungry. He was among the twelve who healed the sick, who raised the dead, who cast out demons, just like the other disciples when they were sent on their ministry, and, you know, excitedly proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is near. But something changed. Jesus began to talk about his impending death and predicting suffering, suffering for himself, suffering for the disciples. 
and we still don't know why Judas chose to betray Jesus, but it appears that uh, Mary's anointing of Jesus and this kind of uncalculating gift of generosity that's recorded in the first few chapters of Matthew 26, it seems to be a tipping point for him. There, Jesus declared that what this woman had done is preparation for his own burial. And I suspect that this didn't line up with Judas' understanding of the kingdom. How could this Jesus, who demonstrated his power over nature and death itself, speak of his own burial? I mean, wasn't the kingdom about healing the sick and feeding the hungry and challenging political and religious authority? John reveals Judas', Judas motives when the disciples complained of Mary's extravagance. Keep in mind, John is the most negative storyteller here. In John 12, he says of Judas, he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. At the same time, it's hard to conclude that it's just greed that is his sole motivation. Judas settled for 30 pieces of silver, 30 silver coins, which was minimal compensation for the loss of a slave. This suggests that Judas was probably disillusioned by all that Jesus had come to stand for. So shortly after this anointing, Judas looks for an opportunity to turn Jesus over to the authorities, maybe to get the wheel of history spinning forward again, maybe to force Jesus' hand. We don't know. But his deceit is there, and it's hard to stomach. I mean, it's easy to understand perhaps Peter's betrayal in the heat of the moment, uh, and to remember that all the disciples eventually abandoned Jesus. But Judas' betrayal is premeditated and calculating and full of duplicity and deceit. Even at the Last Supper, he says, surely I'm not the one you're speaking of. And so when the time is ripe, in the darkness of the garden and when the crowds are away, Judas greets Jesus with a standard greeting, a kiss, perhaps even a passionate kiss, calling him rabbi one last time. A dark deed performed under the darkness of night, and with his kiss, Judas set in motion a string of events that will culminate in the defeat of the cross. Events that could not be stopped. And while it might seem that Judas' behavior here is an isolated event, uh, the theologian Karl Barth has noted that in reality, this betrayal of Judas betrays, or rather depicts, the pattern of disobedience that's marked in the life of Israel the nation who was always willing to entertain another god, another pagan deity who might offer them more security or happiness than Yahweh himself. And so Bart contrasts Mary's anointing of Jesus with the Israelites. He says, there never was a time when Israel encountered its god as Mary encountered Jesus. 
when it was willing to trust him and therefore to dedicate itself wholeheartedly and unreservedly to him. Israel always retained the possibility of serving other gods as well as Yahweh. Israel always tried to buy off Yahweh with 30 pieces of silver. But in the person of Judas, there is, so to speak, handed back, that is the coins, that which he had dared to offer God in place of what he owed him. That's a heavy quote, uh, but if we're honest, I don't think it's that much different with us. Are we willing to see Judas in ourselves or ourselves in Judas? Are we content to call Jesus rabbi so long as we don't have to call him Lord? You see, we, we never really know when our next act of denial uh, might set us on a course that leads to the gallows of despair. And uh, it's really easy, it's very tempting to despise Judas for this sheer evil of deceit. And make no mistake, it was an evil deed. We often easily, easily do the same thing. In Judas, we are brought face to face with our own hypocrisy and duplicity and depravity. And there's these haunting words of Jesus, whatever you have done to the least of these, you have done to me. How often do we kiss with our words but betray with our thoughts and actions? Every time we speak critically of our brothers and sisters behind their backs, we undermine community and we've done it to Jesus. How often do we betray Christ when a pleasant face is used to conceal hatred or envy or jealousy? Envy, I like that term. There probably, there's something there. Um, <laughs> write that down. Um, <laughs> how often do we betray Jesus and hand him over by trying to conscript Christ into building our own tiny little kingdoms of insignificance? I was uh, running late this morning, as, uh, and I can't even blame it on the time change. It's just, it's a pattern of behavior with me. And uh, as things would turn out, I'm behind someone who's driving really slowly. Um, and I'm thinking, I gotta get mic'd up, I gotta make sure everything's in order. Um, could you please just move your foot over to the right, the gas pedal, and just push it? Um, you know, yes, it's a four-way stop, but I don't think we need to, you know, it's, there's no traffic, just stop, look, and go. And, <laughs> And I'm, you know, and I'm, I'm getting impatient, right? I'm starting to kind of send the subtle message by, you know, kind of crowding in on them. Please, please, can you move forward? Uh, and then um, I get mildly convicted because um, th they turn into the lot here at Windsor Road. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I, you know, g g guilty. Yeah, it's, it's someone in the first service, so... Um, but, I mean, just think of how crazy it would be to, to confront this person and say, come on, I've got to get in there and preach a sermon on how to be redemptive through brokenness. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a mild betrayal, but it's a betrayal. 
and it reveals a heart, a heart that is not in good standing or in right standing with God, an action that denies the reality of Christ's lordship in my life. And those words come back, whatever you've done to the least of these, you have done to me. And the reality is is that remaining faithful to God throughout our earthly lives is always and only a gift of God's grace. Trusting in our own strength or discipline or the practices of Lent alone is not enough and frankly can be dangerous. Discipleship is no guarantee against desertion and in a sense Judas got what he deserved. But are we to despise him? Aren't we being unnecessarily harsh here? I mean, aren't there passages in the Gospels which say that Satan himself entered into Judas? That's what Luke and John said. Didn't Jesus himself predict this betrayal? And if so, how can we blame Judas? Didn't Judas' betrayal serve some greater purpose? Well, yes, yes it did. And here we are entering into some deep waters. But we also find here the redemptive element of our story. Because if if discipleship is no guarantee against uh, betrayal, we also learn in the life of Judas that God is able to bring redemption through our failures, through our betrayals. And this admittedly relates to this very thorny and highly contested doctrine of God's sovereignty face-to-face with God's freedom. What is difficult to grasp in a general and abstract sense in the life of Judas becomes its sharpest and most piercing point. It's a deep and confounding mystery wrapped up in the life and actions of Judas. And and right away, I want to dismiss two unhelpful extremes here. They are, on the one hand, God's absolute sovereignty, and on the other hand, uh, an absolute or libertarian notion of freedom. The first extreme would makes God so sovereign that God has basically declared everything that will ever happen in time and space. And that is hard to distinguish from sheer determinism. I think human freedom just evaporates in that view. I don't think this fits the biblical picture of God either. But the other extreme takes human freedom and raises it up over God's power. This is the God who needs us to do our part so that God can accomplish his purposes. This God is limited by our actions, even though he's able to make up with it through other um, powers of creativity. It's difficult to defend either of these from Scripture, frankly, and I think the picture is considerably more complex and probably not something we should have even attempted on a Sunday morning, but it's too late now. I've got it here. Um, (laughs) But what what we can stick to is the biblical facts here, okay, and we must hold them in tension. And the first one is clear, that Judas' betrayal is indeed predicted by Jesus. So what can we say about Judas' life and God's will? Uh, Despite the sympathy that we may feel for Judas, and I think we are right to feel that way, um, we find that Judas' betrayal is a clear fulfillment of prophecy. Matthew himself records three separate occasions where Jesus specifically predicts 
Judas' betrayal without specifically naming him, but three separate occasions. John records that Jesus predicted Judas' betrayal even as Jesus acknowledged that Judas was chosen by Jesus. This is John chapter 6. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And then finally in Jesus' prayer to the Father, in John 17, he speaks of Judas, and I quote, as the one doomed to destruction. In specific fulfillment of Psalm 41.9, even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Judas is fulfilling prophecy, but at the same time, he's responsible for his own actions. The gospel writers here make no attempt to excuse Judas from responsibility. They don't portray him as a helpless pawn. He freely rejects Christ and schemes a way to hand him over, perhaps to force Jesus' hand in this situation. Maybe he has an issue with control. So we're faced with this mystery, right, that Judas acts as a free man who nevertheless, in his actions, fulfills what was foretold in prophecy, this prophecy of betrayal. And there's other examples of this in the Old Testament. Real quickly, one of them uh, occurs in the Old Testament where God tells the prophet Isaiah that he is going to raise up the nation of Assyria to punish the Israelites for their faithful less, faithful, for their lack of faith, faithlessness, to God and the fact that they had turned to other idols. I will raise up Assyria as an instrument of punishment. But then a couple chapters later in Isaiah 10, God also says that he is going to punish the king of Assyria for being excessively wicked. And because the Assyrian king is intending to wipe Israel, the Israel nation off of the map. God is able to use this wicked nation to serve his purposes even as he holds them responsible for their wickedness. In the same way, God uses Judas' willful disobedience to accomplish his own purpose. And and at the core, at the, at the very center of this narrative, is, is the, it's the epicenter, it's the ground zero of the Christian faith, and that is the cross. For ultimately, it is God who hands Jesus over for us. Here is where the mystery is at its deepest. For the reality is that Judas' betrayal is instrumental in the handing over of Jesus to die for the sins of the world, to die for us. God accomplishes his work in Jesus through the sinful actions of Judas without condoning or approving of the sin. The very God of the universe who dwelled among us as Jesus of Nazareth willingly allows himself to be betrayed by one of his hand-chosen followers. 
without ever surrendering for a moment his own sovereignty so that he might become the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Matthew's account makes it clear that Jesus is still in charge even when there's no chance of escape in the garden. And after being betrayed, Jesus calls Judas friend and quietly goes with the mob while the rest of the disciples scatter. It's it's interesting to note that the word that Matthew actually uses for betrayal here is a a generic kind of benign word in in the Greek language called paradidomi. Apologies for speaking Greek. Um, It literally means to hand over or to pass on, and how it's interpreted depends entirely on the context. Uh, But uh, Bart here reflected at length on the figure of Judas and notes very insightfully that uh, Judas handing over Jesus, this word paradidomi, without that handing over, there would be no apostle Paul to pass on the good news. That's kind of like the angel Clarence, right, when he talks to uh, George Bailey and takes him to the grave of his brother. Um, And he says, that can't be true. My brother saved everyone on that Navy transport crew. And Clarence says, your brother wasn't there to save those men because you weren't there to save your brother. So I'm just reliving my childhood. Um, I love that movie. But Bart quotes Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 where he uses this language of of the the paradidomy, the handing over. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So the handing over of betrayal was the means by which Christ was handed over for us. Without Judas handing over, betraying Jesus, there would be no Apostle Paul to hand over the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul is set in the shadow of Judas, just as Judas is revealed in the light of Paul. He goes on to say, and I apologize, this is his last, the last quote we'll have from him, uh, but I think, it's, I think it's very insightful and it's rife with tension. He says, in one sense, Judas is the most important figure in the New Testament apart from Jesus. For he and he alone of the apostles was actively at work in this decisive situation, in the accomplishment of what was God's will and what became the content of the gospel. Yet he is the very one who is most explicitly condemned by the law of God. We can't avoid the fact that we are all implicated in Judas' betrayal. For ultimately it is God himself who hands over Jesus because of us. Paul says he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. And what we find here in the life of Judas is actually good news for us. 
because it means that God is not limited by our sins and our brokenness and our failures or our betrayals, big or small, to accomplish his purposes. God never condones our sin, but he doesn't hesitate to use our own brokenness to minister to the needs of others and accomplish his purposes and to establish his kingdom. One of my favorite stories about this is in a book uh, entitled Resident Aliens by Stan Hauerwas and Will Willeman. And they tell the story of a woman who had been assaulted in her own backyard in the middle of the day and was struggling to reconcile that event with God's love and God's grace. And so her pastor encouraged her to talk to someone in the congregation as she was really struggling to deal with this. So she thought about that, and at the next meeting she told her pastor that she wanted to talk to Sam Smith. Sam Smith, why, why Sam Smith? Asked the pastor. See, the pastor knew Sam well, and how he was a recovering alcoholic going through a 12-step program. And she said, because Sam has been to hell and back, and I think he will know what it has felt like for me to go there too, and maybe bring me back. Howard Wasson Williman go on to say, in the view of most people, Sam Smith would likely not be considered a moral hero. But in the church, Sam may well be someone who, like our Lord himself, is able to heal by his wounds. This, is, this isn't Sam Smith's story. This is, this is our story. Antonio Stradivari produced the best-sounding violins in the world, sounds that have not been replicated. And scientists have studied those instruments, and they've come to the conclusion that it is due to this protective varnish that he used uh, to, to preserve them. But they've later discovered that what he used contained borax and chromium, which actually attacked the wood's integrity. And this uh, preserving varnish was actually corrosive. It compromised the strength of the instrument, leaving the wood more hollow and fragile. Um, but it's this weaker wood that allows for more vibration and resonance and a deeper, clearer sound. And in the hands of a master musician, it still produces unmatched sound today. I think, frankly, we're a lot like those violins. In our own sin, in our own failures, in our own attempts at self-preservation, we've actually damaged ourselves. And by doing so, we've become fragile, a little bit hollow, We've compromised our own integrity. But when we give ourselves over to the master, he is able to make music um, that resonates with a broken and decaying world. 
and helps us make songs that stir and awaken hearts to God's love, songs of redemption. It is God who brings redemption out of our betrayals and brokenness to accomplish his purposes. Those who have suffered because of our own failures. Those of us who suffer because of such failures are uniquely qualified to minister to those who are suffering in the same way, who are suffering in bondage to besetting sins and are uniquely qualified to minister to others in ways that others of us are not. Finally, and briefly, we move to the third point here, uh, this third insight of Judas' life, and that's the sad events that bring his story to a close and serve as a deep warning. When we despair of God's forgiveness, we go the way of Judas. We read in Matthew 27 how Judas was seized with remorse, right? But biblical scholars to this day remain somewhat divided over whether his repentance was genuine. I think some are too quick to write Judas off at this point and condemn him here. But the context seems to suggest that he was repentant. He confessed his sins to the chief priests and the elders who essentially told him, you're on your own. He returned the money, threw it in the temple, and he went away and performed the capital punishment on himself. If that isn't repentance, I'm not sure what is. I mean, consider Peter's betrayal and response. He went back to fishing. I mean, we're never even told if Peter confessed his sin to Jesus while sitting on the beach around a fire when they had their conversation. Yeah, the devil may have entered Judas for a time, as the text says, but it would be a real stretch to call that possession or demonic possession. He deceived Judas just long enough to destroy him. And while Jesus' death, yes, was an atoning death for the sins of the world, Judas' death was one of disobedience. Judas considered himself his own judge instead of judging himself in light of the cross. Dorothy Sayers once noted, she, she said, and I'm quoting her here, all of us perhaps are too ready when our behavior turns out to have appalling consequences to rush out and to hang ourselves. The real tragedy of Judas' life is that he despaired of Christ's forgiveness and acted instead as his own judge and jury. The real tragedy is when we are unable to forgive ourselves. And that's not the same as saying our sin isn't all that bad or that I'm, I'm really okay if I just try harder. Because the sacrifice demanded of us, said the psalmist, is really nothing more than a broken heart and a troubled spirit. But that can only be said because of the cross. And Judas' life is tragic because the condemnation he freely brought on himself was taken up by Christ on the cross. 
he was looking for forgiveness in the wrong place. He went to the religious authorities when he should have gone to the cross. But I'm not going to tell him that. I'm not going to blame him for that. He was unable to bear the weight of his own sin, and he didn't need to. And some of you here this morning are struggling to forgive yourselves for whatever. You're still beating yourself up for failing a friend or a spouse or an unborn child. Some of you may be thinking that you have reached the end of God's forgiveness in your struggle over anger or judgmentalism or pornography or drugs, and it is robbing you of the life of joy that is in Christ. We've all sown seeds of betrayal, and in some sense, we are indeed wandering around a potter's field, living life in the valley of the shadow of death, but it does not require self-made gallows. That has been taken care of on the cross. And that's the real tragedy, when we can't forgive ourselves when Christ has already forgiven us. We go on despising ourselves and we effectively toss our silver into the temple to try to get rid of the guilt and replay the sin over and over in our heads and enact these forms of penance. We don't like to look at Judas because he warns us of what can happen when we despair of forgiveness and despise ourselves. Yet Jesus remains faithful to us. He does not look at us with the same scornful look that we often cast against ourselves, but invites us back to the table. He calls us to his side, and he waits ready to kiss you on the lips that say, friend. It's time for some of us to let it go, because Christ forgives you.